Now let's turn together as usual tonight to the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians as we read together a slightly longer section than usual. If you are a visitor, we encourage you to follow the reading in your own Bible and to keep it open in front of you during the exposition of God's word tonight. From verse 25 of chapter 4 into the early verses of chapter 6 as we take an overview of this further section of the epistle uh, this evening. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, uh, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. May God bless this very practical and very searching portion of this letter of Paul to the Ephesians to all of us this evening. Now, last Sunday evening in our course of studies through this great letter, to the Ephesians, you will recall that we were looking at the subject of the new life and the new nature which, by God's grace, we have put on as professing Christians. The apostles' subject, you remember, in verses 22 through 24. We saw that, indeed, we are bound by that great work of regeneration that has happened to us, to live a new and distinctive life, the hallmark of which is found in the Apostle's words, no longer should we live in those former pagan ways. We saw that indeed this is the result of that great work of God within our hearts, 
but that it is also a duty that is laid upon us as Christians to live in accordance with that new nature that God has given us by virtue of the new birth, that daily and practically, by repentance and turning away from those old lifestyles that occupied us, we are to honor God in this new way of living that is so characteristically different and is modeled upon the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this evening, in the longer section that we have opened up by way of reading it together from verse 25 of chapter 4, through to verse 7 of chapter 6, the apostle, ever practical, gives to us the details of this new life and how it should work out in our daily experience. It is indeed practical counsel for daily living. And as we begin to look at it by way of an overview this evening, I want to remind you that the New Testament you must understand, is not like modern secularism. Because in the modern secular world there are certainly those who preach the ideal of morality of a certain kind. For instance, the humanist does. And he would preach and teach, but there is a right and there is a wrong way of living. And he would inculcate the right way, the moral way, the upright way of honesty and truthfulness in our dealings and so forth. But the New Testament, I remind you, never comes to the subject of our daily living simply on that basis of a right and a wrong way of living. It always comes to us on the basis of a work that God has done in our lives. In other words, on the basis of our regeneration. And on that basis, the New Testament appeals to us to live a different life, to turn our backs on the old way and our faces toward the new way. Because in New Testament teaching, we are to realize that it is only possible for us to live in a new way when God has inwardly changed us. And the New Testament never preaches mere morality or humanism, as we would say today, but preaches the new life on the basis of the new change into which we have entered and by virtue of the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit who enables us thus to live. Now then, as we come this evening, there are six examples of the new life, and the apostle gives them to us in a remarkable way, as we're going to see on these coming Sunday evenings, God willing. And you will notice that in each of them there is a comparison, implied or stated. For instance, in verse 25, if you look at it, the putting away falsehood is balanced by the comparison of turning to and embracing the truth. Or again in verses 26 and 27, the putting away of anger in the Christian's life is balanced by the reserving of righteous anger for appropriate matters. Or again in verse 28, the putting away of thieving 
is counterbalanced by the exhortation for the former thief to practice honest work, to support himself and to support others in need. And so in a very remarkable way, you see, that the New Testament differs again from simple morality and humanism by being positive as well as by being negative. And you never find that in these other schemes for human living. It is an altogether unique teaching that the Apostle is bringing to our attention. Now, as I say this evening, as we take an overview of these subjects, I hope that simply in sketching broadly the principles of each one of them this evening, it will whet your appetite for a more detailed study of each one of these remarkable exhortations as we come to them on forthcoming Lord's Day evenings together. Now, first of all, you notice the Apostle says that the Christian is no longer to practice falsehood, but to practice truth in verse 25. Look at it with me in your Bible. Therefore, he says, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So the first practical application of putting on the new nature and avoiding the old former vices that were characteristic of the pagan life we once lived is the speaking of truthfulness and the practicing of truth in every area in effect in our lives. Now, why does the apostle list this first, you might well ask, and it would be a good question. And I think there are probably two answers. Certainly because in verse 24, the preceding verse, if you notice, he has said that our new nature exists in true righteousness and holiness, in true righteousness and holiness. And there's an obvious contrast with that other nature that is not in truth but grounded in falsehood. And certainly there's a contrast if you look back a little further with verse 22 when he speaks of the old self that once ruled and dominated us when he describes it in verse 22 as being corrupted by deceitful desires. And the characteristic there of the old nature is one of deceit, not of truth. And I think the other reason why he brings this in as the first practical application of the new nature into which we have entered is that lying was characteristic of the pagan world. You know, it's a remarkable thing still today if you talk to an overseas missionary who served for any length of time in lands overseas where there are other false and heathen religions, he will tell you that lying is characteristic of that culture. And I could name a number of lands that I know where missionary friends of mine have served overseas, 
And they've come home and furlough and borne that testimony that even in the corruptness of our Western world, what they appreciate on their return is that because of the continuing Christian influences amongst us, there is a greater measure of truthfulness in our society and among the leaders of our society, corrupt as some of them may be, than they ever see in lands where the Christian gospel has not been allowed to predominate and influence national life. Now, a great deal of emphasis, beloved, in the New Testament is given on this matter of truthfulness, that in our fellowship with one another, there should be openness and honesty with one another. It's not enough, says the apostle, merely to put off falsehood, but we must be able to go further than that and put on the characteristic of truthfulness in speech and action that we might be able to trust one another. And you know, in the Christian fellowship, one of the greatest blessings in a real fellowship of God's people is this, that you can look at a brother or sister in the Lord and you can say of that person, What is there is real. And there's no attempt to deceive or misrepresent oneself. But what you see is what is really there. Now in the world, as I said, the saying is you can never trust what they say and how tragically true that is of a fallen world, whether it's the world of advertisements or sales ploys or even guarantees, unless you carefully read the fine print, you're in trouble. But Christians, says the apostle, are men and women of integrity and complete trustworthiness. We should be, in the words of one commentator, truth-tellers. And you notice the reason he gives in verse 25. Look at it at the end, for we are all members of one body. You see, when we dissemble with one another, and when we are untruthful with one another, it breaks the fellowship, says the apostle. And without that openness and honesty, there is a disabling of the body of Christ. And you begin to see how very vital that counsel of the apostle really is. Now the second matter as we hasten on is that we should no longer manifest anger in an ungodly way but self-control. And I know some of us struggle with this. Verses 26 and 27. In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on you while you are still angry. And do not give place, he says, to the devil. Now, very simply, he is asking of the Christian community and the Christian individual this, that sinful anger must be controlled and subdued and indeed put away. It is no longer acceptable for us if we name the name of Christ to lose our temper, but we should reserve that emotion of anger for an appropriate use and an appropriate matter. 
And we need to notice then that there are times when it is right for a Christian to be angry and when indeed it would be sinful for him not to be angry. For example, in Scripture, anger is one of the attributes of God himself. If you're acquainted at all with the prophetic writings of the Old Testament, you must have come across quite often the passages of God speaking of his indignation and his anger even against his own covenant people on account of their disobedience and unbelief and sin. And you look into the life of our Lord and you see his anger on the two occasions of his cleansing the temple and, for instance, on the occasion of his healing of the man with the withered hand in the synagogue service recorded in Mark chapter 3 when he looked around with anger on those Pharisees and Jewish leaders present who, by their thoughts and actions indicated that they thought it was wrong for him to heal on the Sabbath day. Our Lord was indignant with the hardness of their heart. And the really important question in this whole area is a simple one. What is it that makes me angry? Is it self-centered anger that arises out of resentment of someone or something else? Or is it the anger that arises because of the interests of Christ's kingdom. Now there is a place for that second kind of anger in the Christian life. But you notice that the permission for anger is qualified in three ways, and we'll look at these when we come to them in greater detail another Sunday evening, that we are not to sin in that anger. In other words, it must be free of self-interest and revenge and vindication. Do not sin in your anger, says the apostle. And then secondly, do not let the sun go down upon it. Do not nurse it. And thirdly, do not give a place or a foothold for the devil. And the word literally is do not give him room to act, to leave a half-open door, as it were, into our lives through which he may enter and wreak his perfidious work. No longer angry, but self-controlled. The third one, you notice, follows swiftly in verse 28. No longer is the Christian to practice thievery of any kind, but instead to be marked by honest work and endeavor. It's the third vice that has no place in the new life that we have put on stealing. He who has been stealing, says the apostle, must steal no longer, but must work. And almost certainly the apostle has in mind here the recent converts in Ephesus, and all of them were comparatively recent converts, as we know, who had practiced thievery in their pre-Christian state. It was very common in the ancient world. It's surprisingly common even in our civilized society today. If someone can get something for nothing, then they will be on the take. And many of these new converts were in danger of lapsing back into their old ways. It's often much easier 
to gain something dishonestly than it is to gain something by honest work and endeavor, as you all know. And instead of this, says the apostle, I want to encourage you, he says, to engage in honest work for your own needs and to supply the needs of others who are less fortunate. And it's a basic rule for our new life in Christ. And the principle, as we're going to see, is that we no longer live in terms of self-seeking, but we live in terms of a practice of self-sacrifice. You know, in a very wonderful way, this is illustrated in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We often think of the parable of the Good Samaritan there in Luke 15 as illustrating the gospel, and it certainly does, but it illustrates more than that. You know, the attitude of the robbers illustrates the principle that guides a great number of men today. What is yours is mine, and I'll take it. The attitude of the Levite who passed by on the other side of the road was what's mine is my own. I'm keeping it. And he refused to be involved in another's need. But the attitude of the Samaritan, you see, is what the apostle is impressing upon us here. What is mine, said the Samaritan in effect, is yours and I'm sharing it. And that should be characteristic of the new life as the thief forsakes his former way of supporting himself and begins the practice of honest work to provide not only for his own needs but to become a blessing indeed to society. And it introduces us to the whole biblical doctrine of work that is God-honoring and God-instituted. And if you are without work this evening, I say to you lovingly, and you are a believer, unless you have a very good reason for being in that state, what you should be doing is seeking work because this is a God-honoring and God-instituted principle. And we have the distinctive motive given to us here, as well as avoiding stealing, that we may have something to share he says, with those in need. Now then, the fourth principle. No longer evil speech, but edifying. Verse 29 and following. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful in building others up according to their needs. So the fourth vice that we should eschew, that we should avoid, is foul-mouthed talk, and very probably, too, the apostle means worthless kind of speech. If you and I had lived in that ancient world, one of the things that would immediately have struck us about the pagan society was the habitual character of evil, malicious speech. It contaminated the whole of that ancient civilization, whether Roman or Greek, or even, as we know from the New Testament in many instances, God's own people, the Jews. The use of language that was far from edifying and God-honoring. But the apostle now says to these pagans who had lived all their lives in that environment where it was second nature 
to use the tongue in a bitter and unthankful and malicious way. He says to them, no longer are you to do that, but to make the conscious effort to choose language that is edifying and upbuilding uh, to your fellow saints and will minister grace to the hearers. Some of you know, as you've read Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and that other work of his, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, that remarkable spiritual autobiography that recounts Bunyan's conversion. Some of you will know that he came to faith in Christ as one day he was selling his pots and pans in the streets of Bedford in England and he noticed a group of women sitting on one of the steps in front of their house and they were conversing about the things of God in such a sweet and beautiful way that he drew near and eavesdropped on these women sharing Christian fellowship together. And as he listened, the Holy Spirit convicted him that they knew something that he was totally in ignorance of and that he needed to learn. And he began from that instance to seek after God. And his own language changed. It was said that he was such a swearer that one of his friends rebuked him on one occasion and said that his oaths and curses had the very smell of the pit upon them. And his speech was remarkably changed when he became a follower of Christ. Not for evil, says the apostle, but for edifying. You know, it's one of God's greatest gifts, the gift of speech, but how quickly it is abused and becomes a barbed weapon, even among Christians. As James reminds us in his epistle concerning the evils of the tongue, that it is inconsistent, he says, that out of the same fountain should come water both bitter and sweet, as we bless God and we curse men with the same mouth, edifying, speech. Oh, to cultivate that more amongst us, the ability to speak a word in a season. But let me warn you, dear friends, don't ever imagine in any Christian society and fellowship on this earth that we shall not be hurt at times. We shall be because of our own remnants of sin within us. But alas, on occasion, take the upper hand, and we need to pray constantly, Lord, set a watch over my lips. Well, then, fifthly, there's to be no longer bitterness but forgiveness. Look at verse 31 and following. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander. There are six qualities mentioned, and all of them from the darker side. It's the fifth vice to be left behind, the bitterness of a hardened heart. And in its place, forgiveness is to be put. Now, wherever there is a hardened heart, you see these fruits of bitterness and slander and clamor. But wherever you see the, the contrary virtue of the tender-heartedness that the apostle exhorts, there is rather the fruit of kindness and compassion and forgiveness of one another. 
And I have to say to you this evening, you know, that in a sense that tender-heartedness comes very painfully to many of us. Just as meat is tenderized, as you women know, by many blows given to it, I'm afraid very often we come into that tenderness of heart only as we receive many blows ourselves and are humbled and are brought low and able to sympathize with tender-heartedness toward the needs and the sins and faults of others. And you notice in this connection a verse that we've passed over and will comment on another time, verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And it's certain that it's there between verse 29 and verse 31 because our sins of speech and our hardness of heart deeply grieves the Holy Spirit. Our unholiness grieves that representative of the holiness of God and is a further reason why we should avoid that kind of conduct. And finally, as I finish this evening, the sixth of these vices, you notice, in chapter 5, verses 3 through 6, but among you there must not even be the hint of sexual immorality. Again, it was characteristic of the ancient world. It was thought very little to be an immoral person. Indeed, it was almost expected that immorality would be practiced at some point or stage of one's life, if not continually. And you will know that many of the heathen temples of Rome and Greece openly placarded their male and female prostitutes for the use of the so-called worshippers, and that in the streets of the seaports, particularly like Corinth and Antioch, immorality and prostitution of every kind was rife and far from being frowned upon was practically encouraged. Now the apostle comes and he says, not so. You are not to live impurely and immorally as once you did, but thankfully, do you notice at the end of verse 4, and he turns from the false practice of lust in the area of sex to the true practice of love in verse 2, from the common perversion of love to its true observation. And there was no greater distinctiveness of the early church than their purity in the sexual realm and their faithfulness within the marriage contract, the one to the other. And in the midst of this pagan world that was a sink of immorality, their light shone out clearly and brightly. As John Stott says in his commentary, when believers rose up out of that first century environment, they rose up like flowers out of the filthy pagan mud. Immorality stands for everything that denies the holiness and uniqueness of the marriage union. And greed there, which is used in a sexual sense, expresses the ruthless greed and the selfish indulgence that exposes others to your lust and your pleasure. And obscenity refers to that coarseness and jesting and filthy talk that men and women sometimes, alas, too practice for a cheap laugh. 
But instead of that, he says, and we will look at this in greater detail, thanksgiving is the response to God's gift of sex, and we should speak of our sexuality always in such a way that we can give thanks heartily to God for it. Well, in conclusion, let me say this. My dear friends, the new life in Christ is not a theory. The key theme of this passage is the practicality of living a life that is totally changed in every area so that men can look at us and they can compare the old with the new in these six examples of falsehood and anger and theft and evil speech and hardness of heart and immorality. It's the New Testament picture of the transformed life, and it should be ours. And it is as positive, you see, as it is negative. The New Testament never comes to us and says simply, don't do this. It always comes to us and says, don't do this because being new creations in Christ Jesus, you are being enabled to do something very different instead. And you know, that's one of the weaknesses of fundamentalism in the church today as compared with a well-rounded biblical faith such as I hope we hold in the Reformed churches. Fundamentalism says to its followers, don't do these things. Go to movies, wear lipstick, keep company with non-Christians and so forth. It's always a negative without the corresponding positive. And it leaves the poor Christian often in a vacuum. And it leads him or her inevitably with that imbalanced teaching into the dangers of temptation and disobedience in other ways to God. Paul's message comes not to leave us, you see, with emptiness, but to fill up that void with that which is glorifying to God. And we are to love one another as he sums it all up, as Christ loved us, the Christian's new uniform. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the honest application of the apostles' teaching to the very nitty-gritty areas of our lives, not leaving us with a theory, but taking that wonderful principle of new life in Christ and relating it to the everyday situations that encounter us and sometimes to our shame leave us living more of the old life than the new. Strengthen us, Father, both by this overview this evening and, as in thy goodness, we come to look at each of these areas in greater detail that we may see how very practical the Apostles' Council is that will enable us to be strong where previously we have been weak and to triumph where previously we have encountered defeat. May this be so to our blessing, 
to thy glory and all for Christ's sake. Amen.